Welcome to the Ian Bowsfield Experience. I'm glad you're here. This series of podcasts are just things that come up in my mind when I'm thinking about playing, when I'm thinking about teaching, and general thoughts about music. There are some things here that I hope you'll find really useful. And don't forget, if you've got any comments or if there's anything you want to discuss further, go to ianbowsfield.com. Welcome back. Welcome to When Good Style Turns Bad. It's a catchy title. Might be appropriate, might not be. But you're here now anyway. Let's recap. This is part two on style. The first one, I looked at what it was to belong to somewhere. What it was to be born, raised in a society that created music that belonged to a certain part of the world. And that it was our job as performers to transport the listener back to that time and place to understand that time and place in history and it's a beautiful beautiful thing it's a it's something i really really love it goes back to the theory of um, i think most people really wish they had a time machine and you could go back to any time in human in in human history and, and and walk the streets invisibly to see what it was really like and that's one of the things that I find fascinating about style is we have the chance to do that. How accurate we can get, <laughs> who knows. Um, now, before we move on, I've had a couple of fantastic questions from the wonderful Ian Moffat, freelance trombone player in London and very, very good friend. And actually, his questions are great for getting into this subject again. And he says, to what extent do you think the individuality of orchestras is being eroded by the globalization of the talent pool? Is that sense of musical terroir being lost? Or is the critical mass of players imbued with those traditions in the orchestra still strong enough to absorb and convert global incomers to their own specific performing traditions? So in other words, the fact that we all get on planes and go and play in different orchestras in different countries, are we watering down um, the styles of those orchestras now? Um, well, I guess yes and no, it doesn't have to be. I, I think on that point, um, every retiring generation of an orchestra has said, ah, the orchestra's losing its style. I mean, everyone, you know, when, when I... Uh, when I uh, first joined the Vienna Philharmonic, the old guys were saying, oh, it's not what it used to be, you know, we're losing the style, all these young players are coming in, and, and they're still saying it now. <laughs> when I joined the London Symphony, they were saying the same thing, it's not, like, it's not what it used to be. Um, so that's a, a common gripe. This discussion has been going on for years. I would, at this point, like also to discuss I just mentioned something that I noticed last year, really, really interesting. I, I grew up playing in English-style brass bands, but don't really have much to do with them anymore. I sit on competition juries occasionally. And last year, I had the, I had the um, ability at my leisure at a festival to listen to pretty much all of the top bands. Uh, Foden's, Fairies, uh, Brickhouse... Corey, Black Dyke, all giving concerts at the uh, Royal Northern Festival of Brass, which is a wonderful festival in January, happening around this time, actually, I think. And what amazed me was those bands still sound the same now as they did when I was a kid. 
nearly 50 years ago when I first started listening to them. The style of those bands is, is, is the same. The texture is the same. Uh, the color is the same. I mean, you can argue as to whether they're technically better now than they were then. Probably, yes. Um, to which some of the older guys would sort of add in, well, never forget that musicality is also a part of our basic technique. <clears throat> but that's another podcast and we won't go there. There was only one. Black Dyke didn't sound the same. My, my beloved Black Dyke of the 1970s, that sound is not really to be found at the moment. But by and large, that style has remained the same. Are we, going back to orchestras, are we losing the uh, corporate sound and style? Yes, we are. But I think, um, Ian Moffat, I would like to uh, raise the point that the style of a composer is actually separate to the style of an orchestra. Um, and at this point, I'd like to say, I don't listen to London orchestras enough to really, really judge, but you could always tell which one was the London Symphony and which one was the Philharmonia, for, for example. They had very identifiable sounds and styles. Um, and the London Symphony had its own sort of sound world and its own style. And certainly, I heard the London Symphony a couple of years ago do the Alpine Symphony in London. And... Um, I was getting a bit grumpy after about 30 seconds and I couldn't work out why. And then I realised it didn't sound at all like Richard Strauss. Um, or not the Strauss that I had grown to love and perform regularly in Vienna. And also heard from other um, Germanic orchestras. Strauss was German, of course. <laughs> and once, once I... I mean, the playing from the orchestra was phenomenal. I mean... Come on, it's the London Symphony, sounding great. Phil Cobb, bloody extraordinary. Shame he's gone to the BBC Symphony, but there you go. Um, I mean, it was just incredible. I mean, really great playing, but it wasn't really Richard Strauss. It was more about the intentions of the conductor, and it was more about, or should I say the interpretation of the conductor, and more about the sound of the orchestra. It was the London Symphony. And matter of taste. I'm not here to point fingers or judge. Some people like that, some, pe some people don't. Um, and the other thing there is, I think the days of conductors instilling style, tradition, and authenticity into a performance of a piece actually has gone. In many, many places, there are a few notable exceptions. Um, I mean, there's that magician Bernard Heiting, where, <laughs> you know, he puts his hand down and it sounds like Mahler, and then he puts his hand down again and it sounds like Beethoven. And whatever he does, it sounds like the composer that he's conducting. And yet his beat doesn't seem to change. He's one of the wonders of the world, that guy. I asked him how he did it once, and he said... Klangvorstellung, so the, the imagination of your, your sound. But, so I didn't learn much from that. <laughs> it's brilliant. You know, Christian Thielemann, all he has to do is beat four beats in a bar and it's going to sound German. It's incredible. Franz Welzermerst also, very, very amazing. But by and large, the conductors are on a an aeroplane more than they are in front of an orchestra and 
the approach there seems to be about their insights into the piece, their interpretation, bringing their meaning in many, many cases, and their performance. And again, I'm not criticizing or, or judging, it's just a, it's, that's how music is approached now. Um, now we can discuss whether that's the reason why we're not enjoying performances quite as much these days. I don't know. And I genuinely mean, I don't know. I'm not being diplomatic. I'm not sure. Um, I once... You know the two best rehearsals? Oh, sorry. Two cases of the most magnificent conducting I ever experienced. One was... Um, we did Nielsen's Fourth Symphony with the Vienna Philharmonic. And Simon Rattle was conducting. And... Um, it was like a first performance. <laughs> They'd never played it before. <laughs> um, I think a few of them knew the what was it, the Nielsen flute concerto? But it was it was not really on the orchestra's radar. Let's put it that way. And I saw Simon take that piece apart and put it back together again in three hours, in such a way that he almost created the piece before your very eyes, so the whole orchestra understood what it was all about. He then came back shortly thereafter and did The Dream of Gerontius. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, The Dream of Gerontius. Elgar in Vienna. And um, I didn't play the concert. Um, I, I actually didn't want to <laughs> sit and hear, hear, hear my orchestra play Elgar because I didn't think it would work very well and about the biggest compliment I could give to Simon was I said it, it sounded totally and utterly English I went to the concert and if you closed your eyes it sounded like an upgraded version of the Halle Orchestra with Sir John Barbaroli he did an incredible job but by and large, the responsibility for style and identity now, therefore, must land at our doorstep as, as the instrumentalists. I nearly said musicians then, but... <laughs> um, you know, it lands with us. It's our responsibility. The days of a music director living in and spending six months of their year in a certain city have gone. They don't sort of sit there for... 10, 15 years, they're travelling the whole time. So I think this is something that we need to do in education. I think the question, you know, what is this? What is the style? What is the, what's the difference between Ravel and Shostakovich? And, you know, of course the best orchestras do that. And what, I was just thinking about this earlier today. If you listen to the um, Concertgebouw Orchestra in Amsterdam playing Shostakovich Ravel and Mahler. It sounds completely different, but it still sounds like the Concertgebouw. So it is possible. Um, but that, I think the important part here is that this discussion really needs to happen now. It's not just a question of following the wishes and intentions of a conductor who will look after everything. I think style and authenticity, authenticity, and again, let's not get into this thing of original instruments because I believe it's 
possible to play in an extremely historically informed way on modern instruments. And I believe it's possible to play a authentic nonsense on original instruments. Um, so, I, you know, I mean, that said, some of my favourite instruments in my cellar here are, um, at home are, 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 you know, original instruments. Love them. Fantastic stuff. So now let's really cut to the chase about um, authenticity and style. Someone, a very famous player in um, Vienna, once said to me, haha, Wiener Klangstil, last night's bad concert. <laughs> so the sort of sound style in Vienna was just an excuse in many cases for bad playing. And I, don't, I didn't and don't agree with that. Um, but I can see um, the, um, I can see where he was coming from. I'm very often approached by young professional players saying, you know, I'm supposed, I'm told I'm supposed to do this, 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 and this, but I can't believe that's tradition. I can't believe that's good tradition. And no, there are some things that are without question, I would say, based on historical technical limitations, like this, for example. And <laughs> whilst we can see where it's coming from, the kernel of that, the centre of that, I agree with in the style. But you can hear how that's also come from um, an era where perhaps that was the only way it was going to come out. And perhaps a more modern way of looking at it would be... So forgive me for having played somewhat quietly, and this is not the best of recording devices, but I hope you can get the idea. Um, it still keeps the basic parameters of sound and style, the basic um, idea of clarity is there. I think that's the important thing, the basis of the style, but done in a modern, correct, hopefully, <laughs> technique. What we really do need to avoid is the other side of the coin. And here I stand side by side with all of those German and Austrians who oppose this. I do too. I'm sure you can see why. I was once, um, as we say in English, tickled pink. I laughed my head off when someone tried to talk to me about Philadelphia Bruckner. <laughs> the, 
I'm sorry, but there is only one Bruckner, isn't there? And he was Austrian. <laughs> um, I'm sure you can see where I'm coming from. The other thing, as far as when style turns bad, is I very often, and this is often not from German players, I have to say, but people talk about the trombone character as being an excuse for sounding like there's flames coming out of the end of your bell. This is not a trombone character. This is lack of control of your instrument. Um, and you should get yourself under control. It is possible to play intensively, even aggressively, whilst maintaining a good quality of sound. So don't let anybody tell you that the trombone character is fire coming out of the end of your bell. It's not necessary. We can do it, and we all enjoy it sometimes, but let's not pass ourselves as, as character and style. It's just as letting our hair down and having a bit of fun. Um, and if we actually look at that, particularly related to German repertoire, um, I'm, I'm sure I've said this before, but um, the original instruments, so the instruments that Mahler, Bruckner, Brahms were listening to, um, the old Krushbys and Heckles um, were excellent, excellent instruments and don't let anyone convince you that they were small bore instruments. They were absolutely not. Germans, please get in contact with me. I will discuss this with you anytime you like. Um, I recently spent a wonderful day in the Grassi Museum in Leipzig and took a collection of small mouthpieces and we had our measuring equipment with us, and um, the majority of those old Crushbys and Heckles were bigger than anything that we have now. Certainly bigger than a, you know, if you take, let's say, I don't know, a Bark 42, for example, you know, the actual end of the slide measurement was actually bigger than what we're playing on today. And it, those, those instruments, so the instruments that, that, um, that those legendary composers were listening to um, in my experience, it was almost impossible to make a nasty sound on them. It was almost impossible to make an aggressive sound. Um, you know, you reach, it gets louder, bigger, louder, bigger, and then it just packs in on you, it just stops. You can't get nasty with it. Um, and again, if we're talking about style and authenticity, that is what the composer had in their head. The medium bore trombone, the dual bore German trombone, the model Vetschke comes from 1930, not 1880. Um, and if one of my changing, changing countries, one of my favorite recordings is the Debussy, Pelias and Melisande from, I think, Aix-en-Provence in about 1952. And it is one of the most seductively charming yet approximate <laughs> recordings of anything I've ever heard. It was a live, live recording. And um, it sounded in some cases like the musicians um, had, um, <laughs> had uh, not let the concert get in the way of them enjoying their day. And I think you might be able to work out what I mean by that. And... Um, but the trombone sound is just this piping, beautiful, sweet, I mean, really glorious, glorious sound. Um, there's no aggression in that. That is the trombone character. 
So now, now to the uh, international globalization of the talent pool with everyone traveling around. Is it watering down the style of orchestras? Well, it can. Um, but I think in general, no. Unless you change 50% of the orchestra in one go, um, I think that what happens is the new players come in and they fit along, fit in with whatever's been happening for the last who knows how many years. And, but it will move slightly and slowly, like steering an oil tanker, you know, where you sort of like turn the steering wheel and five minutes later it starts to move. Um, there will be gradual changes. Uh, the London Symphony Orchestra trombone section, for example, now, I don't think, well, there are many in the section at the moment, but it doesn't sound like, you know, the last few years, from like 1930 to about now, about 2000, there was a kind of a similar ethos, um, <laughs> like uh, electric trombone, <laughs> guilty as charged. Um, and it changed a little bit after that. So gradually things can change in the picture. Again, not saying good or bad, but yes, they do change. I would take you back, though, to uh, I had this fantastic experience in September where I last minute stepped in and played with the Finnish radio orchestra doing uh, Bruckner 6. And... Uh, and what I will never forget is hearing the woodwinds. Um, I'll probably sing it very badly, but in the slow music, it goes... And you can hear, that's pure Sibelius. I was singing you the chords from the Bruckner Symphony. And I found it utterly charming that they didn't, what the Germans do, abfrasieren. They didn't sort of do that as would be sort of like expected in, in, in Bruckner. And I found it utterly charming. And the reason why I mention it here is I don't think many of them were Finnish. <laughs> so it is possible to assimilate a style. Um, it's not about where you come from. It's about how open you are to change. Um, which I think leads me on to... At the very end of the last podcast, I left it with saying, music, the universal language, my backside. So I, I believe I owe a slight explanation here. Um, when we are auditioning, when we are looking for new members of our team, of course, we're going to be looking for somebody who does what we do, that plays the way we play. Of course, it's logical. You don't want to employ someone who doesn't fit in at all. But the degree to which one looks, I think, is very important. Um, particularly in the Germanic realm of orchestral auditions and I understand why they do this I say particularly on trombones I don't know whether it runs through the whole orchestra although I believe it does having spoken to a few orchestra managers that it's like we want we're looking for somebody who does this and this and this and this and this and this and this exactly like this exactly like this this note has to be this long this rhythm must sound like this this sound has to be like that 
And like I said, I understand that. But the only problem is if you're not careful, you find yourself employing somebody who's un as inflexible as you are. <laughs> the key to all of this is flexibility. The key to this is uh, employing an open-minded, flexible musician who can change and fit in like a chameleon. Um, and we all know that the, <laughs> that system's not really that successful where you pick someone out who plays, you, someone wins the job because they've got, you know, they play that 16th long <laughs> and we like that. Um, I'm not joking, folks. I hear all this stuff the whole time. I'm a teacher, so I hear what comes back from auditions sometimes. Now, let, let me be absolutely clear about this. I sounded like a politician then, didn't I? That's what, that, that's what, hang on, no, that's not right. That's what politicians say before they're about to lie. Um, no, not being really clear. I love the Staatskapelle Dresden and the Leipzig Gewandhaus and the Ber I love all of these individual styles. I absolutely do, and I cherish them. Um, I, I hope there's no one in Vienna would ever turn around and say that I tried to change their style or water down their style. I spent my whole life trying to fit in and trying to, to cherish, nourish, and take that style forward. I love it. The question is whether you have to come from there um, to do that. And no, you don't, but you have to work very hard. You have to be very open-minded. But on the other hand, I've heard people say, oh, did you hear about the audition in so-and-so great orchestra in Germany? So-and-so great French trombone player did an audition and he went out in the first round. It's a disgrace, he must have been fixed. And I said, well, I'm not surprised he went out in the first round. He wouldn't fit into that orchestra at all. The sound's wrong, the articulation's wrong. Doesn't really understand that. I, I, I personally, I'm not surprised at that. So, um, you can see that I'm flip-flopping and jumping from one side of the fence to the other. On the one hand, I love these individual styles, but on the other hand, I hate the inflexible drawing of lines, um, particularly in auditions. I see on a, on a really regular basis fantastic players being passed by by orchestras because they don't make exactly the same phrasing on something. Um, and I have enough, I'm not going to go into any names now, but I have enough um, examples of students now sitting in world-class orchestras. I mean the biggest, who weeks before were passed over in the first round of a competition or, or, um, or in a student audition for a much lesser orchestra. You know, I see that happening the whole time. And the reason why I mention this is, is because, guys, if there are any German people listening to this, I love your style as much as you do. I want to protect it. I want to help it. But I don't think what's happening is the way to do it. Um, and, of course, for those of you who are not in, uh, used to, accustomed to German auditions, as far as I'm aware, you don't get asked to do things again. I know I tried to suggest that in Vienna, you know. It's like, well... If they don't do what we want, why don't we ask them whether they can do it? Because if they can change immediately, we've, we've won, haven't we? That's fantastic. And, um, oh, no, no, we don't do that. We don't do that, you know. So um, I think, uh, I actually like the, I like the system of selecting people in, in London. Um, 
In the past, they didn't used to do auditions at all. I never did an audition for the London Symphony. Um, and they just used to take a lot of people and try them out. And now I get the impression with the auditions, they sort of like, they'll listen to the whole field and then pick five, six, seven, eight. Because you need to know that someone can play all the difficult stuff. You don't want to give someone a job and then three years later find out they can't play Bolero. So, so they, they kind of do everyone, they check them all out, check them over, make sure they can cover all of the bases, do everything they need to do, and then they try them out. And the first thing they find out is, can we live with this person? Because you're going to need to. You know, spend more time with the person you're sitting next to than members of your family. So, um, so it's got to work. You've got to be able to interact. You don't have to be best friends, but it has to work professionally. And, and then they sort of like see which one of those five, six, seven, eight, which one of them fits into the section best. Because some people perform better in an orchestra than they do in auditions. And, um, you know, some people are going to adapt to the style of the orchestra better than others. And, and that's something I think that perhaps, you know, in, in the German system, if you leave the, leave the uh, system as it is, but rather than taking one, you know, you take four or six, you know, give, take six of them and give them all two months tryout over the next year. And then a year's, in a year's time, you've got some. Um, so I, I just, I see the audition system has been very much a way of drawing lines as, as just sort of like using style as an excuse to uh, um, draw lines between you and the next person. And music is supposed to be the opposite of drawing lines. It's supposed to be inclusive. It's about the universal language. And um, we can't all start off agreeing and doing the same thing, but we can reach the same conclusion. Um, so... That sounds like I've gone on to a little bit of a rant about um, auditions, but that's where I see, you know, style and identity going a little bit wrong. Um, I, I sometimes wonder whether um, Wagner sat at home and decided he'd um, pick out this this um, this melody just for a bit of fun to get trombone players fighting for all eternity, and I think he thought, I know. That's fantastic. They're going to fight over that one, aren't they? <laughs> you see, the thing is, just about every orchestra thinks that anyone who doesn't play that the way they do it is crazy. Everybody knows it goes like this. But everyone has a slightly different way of doing it. Now, okay, there is a kind of bog-standard, basic-ish way of doing it. But that's one of those things. It's like, oh, what's wrong with that? They're stupid. Don't they understand how this is supposed to go? It doesn't go like that. Now, the, 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 the reason why I, I mention that is... Um, oh, by the way, if you're practicing the Rider of the Valkyries, it's in 3-4. There's an accent um, on the uh, first beat of the bar. And so that should be the loudest note in the bar. And we should hear each one of the notes produced very clearly. And... Um, it should be in tempo. Start there. It starts to sound like the Rider of the Valkyries when you do that. As far as the individual styles of orchestras are concerned, that maybe pff, you better talk to them. Um, in my last season in the Vienna uh, Philharmonic, I played, we re I did the ring cycle three times. Well, did the ring cycle with Franz Welter Merst and then recorded it with Christian Thielemann 
And then we did that um, uh, Ring Without Words with Lauren Mazel. So I played the Bride of the Valkyrie with, with uh, those three. So, so France wanted... France, I'm sure you won't be listening to this, and if that's not what you intended, I'm really sorry. Um, <laughs> uh, Christian Thielemann... Uh, one, two, if I remember, so there's like a momentum at the end of the measure. And uh, Lauren Mazel wanted really heavy at the end. So when we say everybody knows how it goes, we don't. And so now, how do we identify style? Um, I work very often with um, students on many different instruments who are preparing for auditions in all manner of wonderful orchestras. And I think in this day and age, we like to analyse everything. You know, um, like, um, oh, it's French trombone music. Play with vibrato. <laughs> That's nonsense. That's probably another podcast. French trombone players didn't start using vibrato until uh, Gabriel Masson became obsessed with Tommy Dorsey in about 1955-1956. Come on, French trombone players, you know that. And if you don't, actually, you don't listen to this anyway. I've seen the demographics. (laughs) So the French trombone players played straight up until about 1956. So what is that? You know, we think French, French music, play vibrato. I think what we want to do is, in this day and age of analysing, um, identifying, intellectualising everything, we want to write it down, we want to identify. You know, uh, if you want to sound like a German, you'd play with this articulation and this sound and, and this length, and, uh, but hang on a minute, what is this sound? How do you define sound? Oh, it's dark or bright. Really? That's the best you've got? Good luck with that. This is about... Um, you, you, you can't do something physical. You can't do something cognitive to assimilate the style of anyone, anywhere. Um, it's about speaking and understanding the language of music. If music is the universal language, what is it? You can't define it with getting louder, quieter, faster, slower, accents here, longer, bigger mouthpiece, who knows what rabbit hole we're going to go down there. It's about understanding, and here we go, I'm back on my old thing again, on an intuitive level what somebody is saying, what the music is. What the sound is. What is the content of the sound? You know, you can, you can hear a lovely old recording of, you know, a French trombone player in the 1950s just playing a middle B flat. I can hear that. French musician, you know, filled with this optimism and sunlight. Again, I'm trying to identify it for you. It's not, it's a feeling, isn't it? And you can hear a German from an old recording in the 1950s, just that depth and serious sonority. Wonderful. But you can't 
it's not like going into a laboratory with a test tube and taking a bit of this and a bit of that and putting it together. It's, um, it's again, it's something intuitive. We need to musically understand where somebody's coming from in order to assimilate that style. And as I say, this is something I feel I do have some experience in because I'm a bit of a bit of a musical nomad. Um, I've travelled around so much. Um, okay. Ian Moffitt, we started with one of your questions. I'm going to finish with one. And this is probably a podcast all on its own. What does the rhythm and native spoken language have to do with terroir, the belonging to a certain place in the earth? So, um, basically, vowel sounds. And if you like the way I come from in the north of England, everything is very hard. I speak very off and strong. Strong use of so, and I play very clearly as well with an extremely clear articulation. Um, and like I say, it's a podcast. And you say, and this is a, probably a PhD thesis. Um, um, yeah, it is, and quite a few people have done it. Um, and so, you know, the most obvious one to think about is, you know, about Americans doing their duty. There's two D's in that, by the way. In England, we do our duty, um, you know, that it's, and there's this, you know, the fact, you know, the English people um, don't pronounce ours, you know, old MacDonald had a farm. There's no R, R in that, is there, you know, it was American's farm, there's not definitely an R in that. Um, and I guess, yeah, I guess I feel as though I've seen some correlation um, between the spoken language um, and what comes out of, of the bell. But that's just something we need to be aware of. It's not a, a hindrance. It's not an obstacle. It's just something some people might have to work harder to, to, to get certain things. Um, I, don't know, I don't know whether this is just a, a stylistic thing or the way I was raised, but I find, for example, I find it quite difficult to do um, tongue legato. English people don't do that. We play lovely open... Farm <laughs> vowel sounds. Maybe it's got something to do with that. It's possible. And and did style build up as a consequence of that? Without doubt, without question. I um, in Italy they have this wonderful um, music education uh, in some regards of teaching everybody solfege, and they can all do it. My Bloody Italian students, they, they do you the bluebells of Scotland to solfege. It's incredible. I wouldn't know where to start. And, um, and they, um, it has a disadvantage because they identify a note by its name, by its solfege name. And it's, I'm so bad at solfege, I'm not even going to try and do it. But we, in my musical language, if I'm going, the will happen um, as I descend. Whereas, if let's imagine that note at the bottom is an e, you go, you can't get down there. And it took me a while to work that out, but that, I've known that caused some people some problems. So that's two things: one is the natural language, and the other is the solfege. So. 
I'm aware that this podcast has um, wandered somewhat and it's a little bit longer than I intended it to be. Um, I've hit on some interesting points there, I hope, regarding style, identification of style, abuse of style, even uh, for good reasons, in many cases, good reasons, not always, um, and how I see we can assimilate other styles and how perhaps it's important for us as musicians to try and inform ourselves as to what style is um, and not um, to wait for other people to show us, you know, to try and listen to different music, different composers and understand what it's about. And hopefully maybe a suggestion as to how the audition system in many parts of the world could be optimised. So there you go. I hope you enjoyed that. If there are any issues that you found particularly interesting, don't forget to contact me and always go to uh, ianbowsfield.com for lots more interesting stuff.